If everything could work out for you like you'd wanted, like you'd hoped, what would it be? The job? You got that job you were after? Position? Or title? Would it be money? Or a relationship? Or a relationship gone bad that could be recovered and reconciled? And how would you feel if everything went well for you? Maybe it's just that you would feel good. How would you celebrate? Would you pray? Would you sing? Would you dance? That feeling. Some of you have had this feeling before. Uh, I hope you can anticipate it if you haven't. But it can sometimes be a difficult thing to think back upon if you have had this feeling. That sense of saying to yourself, well, from now on, everything will be okay. Getting married, having a child, whatever it might be. We're one week from Easter. We're entering Holy Week. The idea being this morning that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and next Sunday we mark the resurrection, Sunday after And so much happens, but the narrative arc of the story finds its intensity and its energy in the movement of the crowd from cheering and praise to the abandonment of Jesus and to jeering and calling for his crucifixion. Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, and we know what that means. Jesus set his face towards his death. We've considered the faith of the followers, the disciples not quite getting it. We focused in last week on the faith of Peter, identifying Jesus as the Messiah, but not understanding what Messiah means, what kind of Messiah Jesus will be, trying to defend Jesus when it's not what Jesus was asking at all. And today, the culmination of this, we move to Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, actually entering into the city, the crowds calling out, and the disciples seem to have no concept at all that he's entering the city in order to die there. Nobody's thinking about that when they're waving the branches. Or almost nobody's thinking about that. One individual is caught up in it. I have a contention this morning, a thing that I want you to know. It's, it's hard to describe. That's my job, I suppose, to describe it to you. I, there's a tension... When, when you're a minister because you have, and at times these can both be good things, but you have things that you know, well, here's what people would like to hear and here's how they would like to hear it. And I'm tasked as a minister, pastor in this place, Keith is the same responsibility, pastors in churches, to consider your lives, things you need, things you would want. But the tension is that sometimes you can pay so much attention to that that it becomes like marketing. Here's how we're going to get you to church. Here's what we're going to do for you. Here's how we're going to make this appealing to you. And again, I'm not saying that as a negative. It can just begin to overwhelm things. And you f- I feel it on a day like today. Many of you know, if you've known me through the years, that Palm Sunday is a, a, often a difficult day for me because I feel the praise of the crowds 
people just jubilant at Jesus entering the city. And I feel like as a follower of his, I know what's coming. And so the praise, every shout of the crowd reminds me of what's coming. And a good marketer, of course, would just use that adulation. So it's almost like the minister is standing up and saying, I do care for you, that I could name every one of you. I do care for you and what's happening in your life. But can I please get off of that and show you what Jesus Christ is doing? Because trust me, as your pastor, what he is doing is more important than what you are feeling right now. So the contention is, well, that you come here as a congregation with the question, is this true? And my role is to say, this is true. Jesus Christ is the salvation of the world and the hope of your life. And trust me, I know what it's like to be caught up in the stuff of our lives and the stuff of the world. My tasks, roles and responsibilities, my leisure time off. Next weekend is Easter. No, next weekend is a long weekend. Which is it? I too love this life. Like you, I hope. But I want you to see that what Jesus is doing is the fullness of the truth. It is true. And what Jesus is doing will bring hope and life to the world. Peace with God. Wholeness, fullness, and abundant life. And I've come before him, and so have you, saying, here's the things I'm concerned about, Jesus. This will bring abundant life. I need not fear suffering. Not that suffering isn't painful, and not that I'll be immune from suffering, but because even in the midst of suffering, Jesus has told me that he is there with me. And I can know salvation then. I need not fear even death. Not because I will not die. But because even death, by the work of my Lord Jesus Christ, has lost its sting. I want you to see. But you have to stop thinking about yourself. (laughs) I have to stop thinking about myself even as I seek to praise. Because you see what happened, right? Jesus told his disciples to go and find a colt, a donkey that had never been, uh, no one had ever been on it before. Get it? And he says, I'll ride it into the city. It's impromptu, but it's prophesied in Zechariah. The king, Messiah, will enter the city on a donkey. Impromptu though, and of course I like that. Jesus' event planning leaves a lot to be desired. He didn't even check with the owner of the donkey, (laughs) apparently. They come out and say to the disciples who are taking it at Jesus' instruction, why are you taking our donkey? The Lord needs it. And we don't have any other word from those owners in, in this text in Luke as to what they said. I suppose if somebody says the Lord needs it, you either say, no, the Lord doesn't need it, or you think, well, I guess that's a pretty big reason, and off they go with the donkey. It's a donkey, not a horse. Because this is a symbol not of war, but of peace. If Jesus were to come as a conquering hero, he would have come on a horse. And people before Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem in this way, if you know your history. On a horse, a conquering hero. 
And the people have no time to plan. They cut down branches and lay down garments and coats and they shout out because many of them would know that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. Hosanna means, you were singing it this morning, you're singing scripture. How is it put in this song? Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us. You literally said the same thing three times. Hosanna, Hosanna. And what Hosanna means is, you are the God who saves us. It's, it's interesting. We don't fully know, because it, well, it can be used two ways grammatically. It can be used to say, Lord, please save me. You are the one who will save me, as if it's a wish, a request. It's also a declaration. You are the God who saves us. It's, it's the bestowing of a title upon the one to whom it's being directed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at least two things are happening in the crowd at this point, if you were there. It would be one of those moments where from now on everything would be okay because this is a culmination. And the people would think, we are here for this. We get to witness this point in history. We get to see the Messiah coming in to save us from our oppressors. From now on, this would be the feeling. From now on, we're experiencing this moment, but past this moment, everything will be okay. The culmination. But secondly, it was triumph. Our side wins. We are not defined by the Romans or by any occupying force. This is called, then and now, the triumphant entry. But uh, Ken was, uh, this morning I sat in on Ken's sermon, and he quoted C.S. Lewis, Lewis when describing this. And he said, Lewis described this, this uh, triumphant entry as something that can't be conceived, something like fried ice. And I, I, I hope you understand that any human concept of the word triumphant cannot be used to describe this day. It doesn't, it doesn't mix. It doesn't connect. And you say, well, it does. It does not. I'm sorry, it does not. Because these very people who were praising Jesus would, within a matter of hours, be the ones screaming out for his crucifixion. But on that day, like you and me, who want all of our fears answered, right? You just want to feel okay. You just want that relationship somehow to turn around. You just want to have these, these things answered in your life, whatever the two or three biggest things are. On that day, these people felt the fact that this, that this Jesus is entering the city in fulfillment of prophecy means that my life in the big picture will be okay. He was answering in their minds the hunger of their heart. He takes them, or their, or their view of him, he will take them from the reality of their circumstance, that's a good and important word for this and for your life, from the reality of their circumstance to something higher. Through what they see of him, they feel that they will transcend what their life has been and the uncertainty of their futures. And why do you hope in Jesus Christ? They will transcend what, what their life has been and the uncertainty of their futures. And so they yell out, Hosanna. He will bring them, in one word, he will bring them escape. So they cut down branches and they cry out and the Pharisees try to stop it all. You see, the Pharisees, religious leaders, always know the power of a crowd. Good religious leaders always know the power of a crowd. And they try to use the power of a crowd. They try to grab a hold of it. I don't, I, when, I use, when I say the word good, I mean good in, in human definition. 
So they know the power of the crowd and they see that the crowd is, is looking towards Jesus and they don't want to lose the crowd to Jesus. And Jesus has a curious response when they say, can you please shut the people up? Jesus, who's relatively quiet on this day, says to them, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. Jesus is identifying that something real is happening here. But it's as if he has a higher view of what's happening, higher than the Pharisees have, who see this triumphant so-called entry as an affront, higher than the crowds who are simply caught up in the moment and mostly thinking about their own future in light of what's happening. Jesus is going to, in the next section of Scripture, right after Anne finished reading, if you have your Bibles with you, you can see it. The very next thing, as Luke tells the story, is that Jesus, after the praise of the people, weeps over the city. This is not how a triumphant king enters a city. Not in human terms. His action on that day is to weep. Jesus is going to give his life for the life of the world. Why do you think he's weeping? Is he weeping because he's afraid of the crucifixion? There is a sense in Jesus that he would in some ways want this cup to pass from him. But it's not the crucifixion that's bringing him tears. It's the fact that the people are not understanding what's happening and what will happen in this city. Jesus is going to give his life for the life of the world and nature itself will be caught up in it. Do you remember at his birth when there were stars in the sky that weren't there before? A star directed the whole, the the natural world even changed, we're told. Well, at his death, the same thing is going to happen. The earth will shake. Some of you have lost loved ones and this is a terrible thing to face. Uh, what What I mean is, of course, the loss of a loved one is a terrible thing to face, but one of the burdens can be that you walk out into the world and nothing has changed, like for the rest of the world. People are still getting on and off buses. Grouse Mountain's still there. And your world has collapsed. Whose death brings about the shaking of the earth? Well, his does. And I can tell you, I'm sharing this now, take off any pastor tag and the rest. This is me as a follower, a worshiper of Jesus Christ. I can tell you that I have heard the rocks cry out. So what am I to make of Palm Sunday? Called the triumphal entry, which is an offensive title at least. No way to understand this word in human terms to describe this event. There are at least two things that are important to see for us to see on this day. The first, and it's not Christian preaching unless this is declared. I'm not saying that you have to say it with particular words. But the first point to understand is that Jesus in this scene is identifying as the Messiah. This is not simply a good man entering the city. This is not simply a man with a social conscience. This is Jesus identifying as the Messiah. He is fulfilling the prophecy in in Scripture, and he is taking that title Messiah as he enters into the city. And it's not Christian preaching without that declaration. But the second thing is to consider the nature of what it means to be the Messiah, what the Messiah is like. And this is where the disconnect comes from the crowd. This Messiah is humble, and we still can't comprehend this. 
I don't mean humble like, you know, a hockey player says, he scores a hat trick and then says, well, it's really my teammates that helped. I, I just mean earthly humility. I'm in the, I mean that he has humbled himself even unto death. And nobody can conceive of this when they think of triumphant. And then for you and me in our lives, as the crowds were after escape, so are you. So am I at times. Not that you have to think life is miserable. I told you that I love this life, and I do. But this sense of wanting to escape, to to rise above, is something that touches all of our lives. And you want it from the activities in your life. Family events, occasions, celebrations, leisure activities, even church. You want to be brought from the circumstance of everyday life to something higher, The word we would use for that is transcendence. You want to be moved above. Uh, One, a a writer, a professor, a pastor, he's really a pastor. That's how he would want to be referred to if if there was any title. Eugene Peterson, some of you have the the translation or the paraphrase called the message. Uh, That's Eugene Peterson. He was for a few years, a number of years, a professor at Regent College, and I I didn't ever take a course for him, but I went to a number of lectures and did some distance courses uh, uh, through Eugene Peterson. A great thinker, a good mind, but a pastor at heart. And he talks about, he has a book called Pastor, what it means to be a pastor, so people like me read those kinds of things. And in that book, he talks about a letter that he received from a young minister. And, And this young minister was moving from a smaller church to a bigger church. And he wanted advice from Eugene Peterson. But Peterson, the way he writes this uh, account, and he writes back to this young man, uh, Peterson seems to see that there's something other than just the request for advice, that maybe the young man is kind of saying, well, I went from a small church, but now I'm going to a big church. Like, he's maybe bragging a little bit to someone like Eugene Peterson, who you can see young ministers may do that. Peterson writes a letter back to this individual, and he he includes it in the book, The Pastor. Thankfully, I don't have the name of the minister to which he wrote, because Peterson's letter is quite, um, I wouldn't say scathing, because that sounds mean. It's pastoral, but it's not what what the minister wanted to hear. And this is what Peterson says. On the occasion of this man moving from a smaller church to a bigger church, Peterson wants to warn him. He says, there are, as I see it, three kinds of transcendence offered in our world today. There's, there's more than this, but this sums up a lot of them. Firstly, drugs and alcohol. Secondly, recreation, recreational sex. And thirdly, crowds. Peterson says, in a post-religious culture, people will always or often seek to find meaning, and they often do so by these means. He goes on to say, But it's a false transcendence. It's a very important concept for this morning. But what these offer is a false transcendence because meaning comes from God. Our hunger is to escape the dullness, boredom, tiresomeness, or anxiety and struggle of our everyday life. But Peterson says to this minister, the first two are a false transcendence downwards. They're dictated by our appetites, our physical appetites or our need for escape. And often with these, the cost can be, not always, can be easy to see. The last one, Peterson says, crowds, 
This is a false transcendence upwards. You are made to feel as if you are part of something. Peterson says, this last one, in my mind, is actually the most dangerous. Because you can think about it for a moment. Whether you're in a football game or a concert or church, if it's the energy of the crowd that's feeding you, it feels the same. Because often there's nothing there at all. Largeness, he's quoting somebody else when he says this, but largeness is an impediment, not a help. And so he says to this minister at the end, so if you are actually asking for my advice, here's my advice. Stay in the small place. You're more likely to be of influence there and to grow yourself and to see God. He says he never heard back from the guy. (laughs) There was a crowd screaming the praises of Jesus on that day. And one thing we know about the crowd They were completely untrustworthy. But it's you, it's me. You have to face that about yourself. It's so easy for us to look and go, yeah, that terrible crowd. These same hordes, it's a crowd then. It'll become hordes, a more negative word, will soon call for his execution. His execution. Their praise was so fickle. But Jesus welcomed it. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a famous Christian philosopher, the founder, father, or whatever you call it, of existentialism that some of you studied in high school and said, what is this about? Didn't sound very Christian, but he is the uh, founder of it. Soren Kierkegaard said, the more people, the less truth. I don't think that could be called a universal truth, but I get it. I have a picture in my mind for you here. But it might as well talk to each of you individually, right? Really, I'm talking to myself because I'm like you. I think of myself more than I think of you. I know you think of yourself more than you think of me. But because I'm a pastor, this is also true. I have a picture in my mind for you. It's like there's a gate here. A point through which most don't pass. I'm I'm mindful that even now, most don't pass through it. Even now, most people who go from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday don't pass through the gate of this Darkness. And I want you to get past it. I want you to get past an empty praise of an untrustworthy crowd to feeling like you're something because you're part of something big. I want you to get past that to faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to feel on Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday is so easy because it's just celebration. I want you to feel on Palm Sunday and Good Friday something. I could care less, honestly, if you even hear the words I'm saying, but that you would be caught up. Maybe it's an image or the sound of nails or whatever it might be to think, oh my God, 
Jesus, what are you doing? You've done this for me. You lose yourself in this. Whereas in the crowd, you lose yourself in a false transcendence. So the question is simple to every person in the room. Will you put your faith in Him? Will you put your faith in Him? Not only praise or empty praise, but will you put your faith in Him? You cannot see the salvation of Christ by the way of the crowd. You cannot. You couldn't then, and you won't now. No matter how many religious experiences you seek to have, you cannot see the way of the salvation of Christ in that manner. It's great. I'm not trying to condemn it at all. It's great to praise together, to gather together and sing. The best, one of the best things that happens when we gather together, and I've heard it more and more lately, is not just when you hear people up here singing, but when you hear people beside you and behind you singing. That's praise. It's wonderful. Let's keep doing it. Let's do it more and better. But you are equipped to do that more completely and fully when you see the salvation of Jesus Christ as He alone goes from the place of this crowd to the place of His crucifixion. Will you seek to receive that revelation of who Jesus actually is as Messiah, giving His life? Will you allow your life to be defined? I mean, how... I'll ask this. You have to ask it of yourself. Will you allow your life to be defined by Him and not by the values of this world? So you want the minister to give you five ways to do this or something. I just want you to ask yourself the question. I trust the Holy Spirit. Will you allow your life to be defined by Him and not by the values of this world? You can't always figure out what that means in church because church is often defined by the values of this world. What Jesus offers is life, full and abundant life. Jesus is not about bringing escape. Jesus is about bringing salvation. Jesus is not about bringing escape. Jesus is about bringing salvation. And don't you want that struggle in your life gone right now? You want escape. He will bring you salvation. It's why from this point until Easter Sunday, except for the marketing part, I would be okay if every word I had to say was scripted. And I'll talk to you again on the other side of Easter. Because now into the quiet. Now into the dark. And I can barely stand to look. For my life is found in Him. So I will seek to do three things. I quickly, this is the world we live in. When I was listening in on Ken's sermon this morning, he had this image behind the whole time during his sermon with just a sermon title up. And I was listening to him, and he did, I thought he did a nice job with the sermon. I, I, uh, as, a, as an evaluator, he, he did very, very well. You give him a three and a half out of five. Never give a four. Never give a five. Why would you give a five? Anyway. Now, Ken, uh, 
The word was good and well delivered. But I was caught up when I looked at this picture. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. And, and it was as if I, Jesus, the way his face is set there. It's almost like my preaching, Ken's preaching, the preaching of all other ministers on this day is in some way incidental. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean anything. I hope you think it does too. But Jesus is doing what he's doing and it will be accomplished. And I was caught up and I thought to myself, how do I speak today then, Jesus? There is nothing to say. This is what I'll do then. And this is a, a personal response, right? How do I do this? This is what I'll do over the next week. And I understand I, I'm a pastor in this place. I have to help you try to do the same thing. But the first thing is I will look and I will ask, Holy Spirit, help me to see what my Lord Jesus Christ is doing, has done. To look as it is revealed. To see, to listen. You need to be reading the Easter story this week. And secondly, I, in some ways, this is one of the things the Anglicans are good at. Uh, not so much St. Timothy's anymore because they read in here so they don't have the healing bars and those kinds of things that you could write. But at least the ministers do each week. They kneel down while the prayer is happening. The second thing I will do this week is I will kneel before my Lord Jesus Christ. Not just reveal it to me, but Heavenly Father, let me be caught up in this to truly see and respond to what you have done for me. And let go of all the measurements that I have in my life in this world, which will always come back in. Instantly, back there, back there, back there. How many? How much? How well received? Lord Jesus Christ, let me push aside distractions to see what you are doing and to respond to put my faith in you that was my question to you this morning will you put your faith in me and thirdly I'll seek to do this now you might see this if you come to church on Good Friday and Easter Sunday I'll just be doing pastor things pastor too from the front row but what's really happening are these three things I will seek to see it I will seek to respond and then this in some ways, the best. I'll get back up and live in the light of it. Live in the light of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you put your faith in Him? Our symbols today as we take communion... The Lenten symbols today, I have this written out. I don't need to look, find it and read it. I can just say it. But. Our Lenten symbols today are the palm branches. In this case, it's a palm cross. The branches up. And the nails. Palm Sunday, as we've been speaking about, marks the observance of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And while the crowds cheered, Jesus knew that soon he would be abandoned and would be crucified. So we're going to take communion in just a minute. Um, 
Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, before his crucifixion, he took bread and broke it. And he said, as he handed that to his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, held it before them, told them that this cup represented the the pouring out, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of their and our sins. And he told us to do this in remembrance of him. So we say that you are welcome to receive communion if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. And we pray for one another that as we receive, we would, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, gain insight into what Jesus has done for us. So Heavenly Father, bless this communion as we take it together in your name. Amen.